Ocean Calls. Hello and welcome to Ocean Calls, the podcast discussing the issues making waves on our blue planet. I'm your host, Euronews science reporter Jeremy Wilkes. If you're not familiar with our show, scroll back to our earlier episodes. One of my favourites is the episode about protecting sharks. And our finned friends also get a mention today. In this episode, we're going to talk about a hot subject that's not directly linked to fishing or the environment like we often cover. Instead, we're going to the ocean floor to investigate the security questions around undersea cables. Much of our internet traffic are WhatsApp chats, Netflix, TikToks, Zoom calls, and this podcast pass at some point through a handful of undersea cables that are only 25 millimetres in diameter. Now, the media loves to speculate on how someone could steal data from the cables or sabotage them, cutting off their web connections altogether. Somehow like the sabotage at the Nord Stream pipeline. What's happened to Yannis? Um, I see you're both freezing. Can you still hear me? No, Nicole's still there. Yeah. Nicole's still there. I think it's interesting that this is the only time that has happened to you, and it's probably the only time you've Those guys in the submarine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, there he is. I can hear you. I'm sorry for the hiccups. <laughs> As you heard there, we had our own mysterious connectivity problems with today's guests. But rest assured, no subsea cables were harmed in the making of this podcast. So is there any truth in speculation about the security of these subsea cables? How safe are they, really? To discuss this issue, I'm joined by Nicole Staroselsky, Associate Professor of Media, Culture and Communication at the New York University, author of the book The Undersea Network. Hi, Nicole. Hi. And Jonas Franken, a researcher in the field of critical infrastructure protection and maritime and information security at the Technical University of Darmstadt in Germany. Hello, Jonas. Hi, thank you for having me. And at the end of the episode, you'll hear a fabulous story of swimming with whales from Spanish adventurer Nacho Dean, the first man to have walked around the world and swam between five continents. It was like a, a mix of magic and I was quite terrified in that moment. I don't think, as far as my understanding of geography is concerned, that there's any sea between where I am in France and you in Darmstadt, Jonas, but there is sea between me and Nicole. Yes. So does that mean, at the moment, that I'm talking to you, we are recording this podcast using undersea cables? Absolutely. This is all of our conversations are... The sounds, the video, uh, all of it is going on the very bottom of the seafloor. Tell me exactly what's happening. Kind of describe, I don't know, sort of, you know, bit by bit as I say something and I send it down these tubes of microphones in front of me. What happens before it turns up at where you are? It gets uh, transduced into digital signals and then sent as a ray of light, essentially infrared uh, radiation in the infrared spectrum along a optical fiber on the bottom of the ocean. And so it'll go first through a cable landing station, uh, and then it'll go out through a beach, usually dug under the beach. So you wouldn't you wouldn't typically cross over an undersea cable. You wouldn't know that you were stepping on it, but you could actually be standing over our conversation if you were on the beach right now or over somebody's conversation. Is it 
actually, as I would hope, a much more direct route from me to Jonas in Darmstadt in Germany, literally. Um, I mean, we're talking about undersea cables, obviously, but I'm guessing the land cables work in the same way, do they? They actually do, but um, it also depends on the routing decisions that the, our, each of our um, communication suppliers has taken. So our traffic could also be routed in different ways, but probably it's more direct than going uh, through the seas. What's deciding about how the message is getting to you, Nicole? Is it literally just internet traffic that's saying, okay, it needs to go via this cable? Well, there's a whole complex set of decisions that are being made uh, typically by computers, by routers that route packets of information along different transit paths. And so like it's possible. And if all of this, the transatlantic cables were suddenly disrupted, our traffic could go the other way around the world to each other. The routers would, would manage to take other pathways. Would we notice if that happened? Typically, no. When there's a disruption, we, we don't notice because the it switches over instantaneously. How long has it been that good? Because it seems to me that it's absolutely amazing now. I've got a fantastic connection. I can see you both perfectly. I was talking to somebody in Australia recently. Same thing. This is quite recent, isn't it? Yes, they have figured out the technology to the point where they can get the level of resolution and bandwidth in a way that wasn't possible 10 years ago, 20 years ago. You saw video conferencing was possible and has been in operation for decades, but wasn't usable at the same level as a consumer technology. Did you know that undersea cables transmit 99% of international internet traffic? Satellite links currently account for only about 1% of international telecommunications. What's the craziest, kind of most ridiculous, untrue claim that you've ever heard about undersea cables? So if if I can start, I probably think it's a, a myth of sharks biting cables, <laughs> or actually being able to uh, damage cables. So yeah, we have to imagine sharks in, like to interact with the environment, and they're sometimes curious and maybe nibble on cables. But usually, if you look at uh, how current cables are built right now with steel wires uh, protection and stuff, we. <laughs> I think there's no scenario that a shark might actually be able to bite through a cable. So I think it's maybe 15 or 20 years ago that the last case of sharks biting through cables was actually recorded. So. <laughs> Poor old sharks, they get a bad rap, don't they? Nicole, have you, got, have you heard any crazy, crazy stories that are totally untrue? Well, I was going to say the sharks thing too. The, in the early fiber optic cables, they emitted a certain frequency that attracted the sharks, but then they immediately figured out that this was a problem and they changed that. Let's talk about the more serious um, threats and, and first off, maybe get a bit of a background on what these cables are. Um, Nicole, can you describe to me what, what do they look like? Where are they? Where are most of them um, kind of positioned? So they are about the size of a garden hose. So they're very small. 
Um, and they're made from several materials. Typically there's the optical fibers at the very center of the cable and that's the transmissions media. That's where all of these conversations are going. There's also a protective sheath of essentially plastic, uh, on the outside of the cable. And then inside there's a, a usually conductor, um, that conducts electricity to the repeat, there are repeaters on the seafloor that amplify the signal. And so there are these different components that have different functions, transmissions, protections, and powering. But it basically is as big as the garden hose that I would use in my garden for watering my plants. Yes. And it's just a very, very, very long cable, is it, Jonas? Is that's, it's basically it. There's no kind of uh, uh, other mystery to it. You've got these repeaters, as you mentioned, but it's just a very long tube. Exactly. What happens at either end? Well, the, the light signals uh, then are received at the landing stations and then turned into traffic that is then being fed into the land systems and then go to the receiving end where the, like, the data packages are meant to, uh, to go. So this is fiber optic just like I receive at my house, that little tiny kind of bit of glass wire thing that comes and brings me television and things. <laughs> <laughs> podcasts but it's, but it's more capable because we have some uh, about 100 channels where information can be sent but what's the capacity on that the capacity right now if you're building a new cable it's probably about uh, in the hundreds of terabits per second wow so i think there's a transatlantic cable right now in planning of 500 terabits per second but it's usually growing exponentially probably doubling around every two years Th is that enough um Actually, Nicole? Well, they keep building them. So currently our capacity is not enough for what our future capacity needs will be. And who's actually using this then? I mean, we're using it now, but are, are companies using it for important secure transactions? Are governments also using those cables for secure transactions? Is the military using the same cable or have they got their own cable? How does it work? Yes, everyone's using everyone's using it. The, the military is the same using one. It. The same cable? That I know of. There are military communications cables in other parts of the world. Um, generally, the military uses major communications networks, private networks, consortium networks that are built by telecoms companies to carry their secure transmissions. It's not a little bit scary that everybody's using the same stuff. I mean, somebody sharing a recipe across the Atlantic is the same thing as somebody sharing really important information, not saying their cake's not important, by the way, but very important government information or whatever. Well, actually, governments and militaries also have satellite communications as backups. This is also an alternative way to communicate for them. But usually satellites do not have the bandwidth that could be used by whole societies. Nicole, you mentioned something that makes me feel I'm kind of rather intrigued by the fact that these cables are run by commercial companies. They're not government owned then? No, there used to be many telecoms companies back in the 1950s, 60s, 70s that were owned by governments. And they would get together and run these cables together. And it would be a collaboration between different national telecoms companies that were owned by different governments. Deregulation changed all that. So all of these companies continue to lay and operate undersea cables, but they're no longer nationally owned. Just talk me through the history. How long have we actually had these cables in place? Mid-19th century is when telegraph cables took off as a technology. 
Throughout the late 19th century and early 20th century, there were cables laid all around the world, even as radio came into being. And then in the 1950s, you started to see, I mean, it was developed before then. You had early telephone, subsea telephone cables before that, but you started to see transoceanic telephone cables laid around the world through the 1950s, 60s, 70s. And then all of a sudden it was the fiber optic era, which is the beginning of today's era. Yeah. When, when did that start? In the 1980s. Before we get into the risks also, just the curiosity in my mind of like, how do you put these things down? Are they literally just wind up a massive amount of cable and then roll it off the back of a ship? Is, is that how you do it? Yeah, well, usually if it's far off the coast and there's not much fishing activity going on, they're just laid on the floor. Nicole, they sound vulnerable. Do they actually break quite often? They do actually break quite often, but not for reasons that you might think. Um, they're often severed by fishing nets, by anchors, by humans who just have no idea that the cable is there. So they're actually disrupted quite frequently, um, all things considered, uh, but they're repaired very quickly in, in many parts of the world. In some other parts of the world, the re repair time is much is much more difficult. How on earth do you manage to repair it then if it's got broken quite deep in quite deep water? I'm guessing it's dark down there. How are you going to find the ends? So first of all, they can tell where the break is based on the technology. So the ship right. can sail out exactly to where the break is. Then what they do is they take a grapnel and they drag it along the, the seabed and they grab one end of the cable and they pull it up and they buoy it. And then they go and they grab the other end of the cable and they pull it up and they buoy it. And then they splice another piece of the cable, those two ends together, and they drop it back down on the seabed. So it's somebody's job to grab the two ends of that garden hose and splice them together, literally. Yes, yes. But it has to be in very good conditions. Like it's very hard to do a, a splice of optical fibers if you have rough or stormy conditions. So I could imagine that could be an absolute nightmare. Yeah, the, <laughs> because it has to be, does it have to be done by a person? Yes. And then there's an additional problem, which is as sometimes in different waters, in national waters, they'll require certain levels of permits before you can repair the cable. So this is a huge risk and a huge problem for the internet. And you wouldn't think that permits would be like an interesting thing to talk about on a podcast, but I will I would sell you on it. I would say that go permitting- on, Go on, pitch us. Yeah, so I'm going to pitch it right now. It's uh, So do you think the internet goes out because uh, you know fish, fishing net like breaks a cable and the boat is ready to go? The boat's ready to go repair that cable that day. But they can't go because they're sitting and waiting for a government to give a permit to go into territorial waters to repair the cable. So as a result, then everybody sits waiting on the government to give this permit for their internet to come back. So everybody in Vietnam or something is saying the internet is very slow today. Yeah. Um, and India is one of the places where this is, this is a problem um, in terms of territorial waters and ships. What an enormous sense of kind of frustration that must be for people involved. But also, I suppose it kind of is quite different to the stories that we have in our minds of kind of malicious actors and malicious states. Have there been genuinely examples of malicious actors or states um, who are maybe at war with other states going, going along and deliberately cutting somebody's internet cables? Has that actually happened or is it, or is it just something that the, the press speculates about? There have been no cases of 
internet cable at sea that have been uh, sabotaged by uh, state actors or non-state actors. It's just like a scenario that's usually... It's a scenario that you hear about. It's one that if you were to search the internet, then you would get an awful lot of responses. But why is that, Nicole? Why has that become uh, a concept that's in the kind of public mind, that this is a vulnerability? Have we literally been watching too many James Bond-type movies? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is that undersea cables aren't particularly sexy or interesting. Um, I think they're incredibly interesting. But for a general public, there needs to be a way to sort of sensationalize them. And sabotage is a great sensationalist story. Well, given that you've got military, government and everything else going through there, including this conversation, it is your way to kind of hack into the the, the world, isn't it? It's a door, a possible door, to understand everything that's being exchanged in terms of information. Correct. But governments have access to and can go into cable landing stations if they choose to. They don't need to go into, they don't need to go to the bottom of the seafloor mm. to, to access communications. But one state that might be at war with another or about to be at war with another might very well have an interest in hacking its undersea cables, mightn't it? Well, that's true. That's not actually been the case. Um, and there are technical reasons for that. But there's also, there are just easier ways to hack into cables from computers on land. Yeah. Um, I actually wanted to go back to a question why, the, why there's like this scenario that's often reproduced in the media um, of sabotage. And I think often the reasoning is then going back to World War I or World War II, where one of the first acts was to cut uh, then Germany's uh, uh, telegraph cables and then um, cut their contacts to uh, colonies or international alliances. So I think that's one of the reasons why there's always this um, this story around yeah sabotage as a, a thing. But to disrupt internet traffic, you need to damage multiple cables. And this is where things really get tricky because you have to do it at the same time or in times close by because there are also repair capacities you need to uh, take into account. So you'd, you'd need a kind of coordinated attack if you were exactly. going to do it. Exactly. You need yeah. a coordination and uh, uh, close time frames. And also, if you look, for example, at the European Union level, there are about 70 cables going into the European Union. And this would be very obvious and also a very, very hard task and very difficult task, even for state actors to pursue to cut all those or most of those cables. The thing that I would add is that you could go through all this effort and launch a coordinated attack and take out several cables at once and people wouldn't have internet or maybe the internet would be disrupted. But that wouldn't necessarily, you know, it would be spotty. So from a user perspective, it's not a very good terrorist attack, right? It's not sensational enough. It doesn't really speak. I mean, it's like, okay, the internet went down. But the internet goes down for many reasons, you know, all of the time. But also, it wouldn't work for every place in the world, because many places have diverse routing enough through other systems, through land infrastructure, through data centers that are located nearby. You're looking at the places that were most vulnerable are like island nations, such as Tonga, which got, you know, their cable was severed. Um, Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I'm thinking of places that have only got one or two cables. Those are the places that are are in trouble. 
exactly. And so when you have one or two cables, that's where you're really at risk. But no disrespect to Tonga, um, maybe they are going to, you know, turn into a global superpower, but it is a relatively small country. But if they have their cables um, cut, what happens? So there, there are severe consequences, right? Because it's not just that, you know, people can't watch streaming video. Um, it's that financial networks don't work. It's that transportation networks don't work, like flight bookings can't work, right? So tourism shuts down. Like there are all these ways that, you know, if you can't, if you can't reconcile financial transactions, people can't use credit cards. How do you ask for help? Well, there's still the, the backup of satellite communication. Usually also small island um, uh, nations have satellite phones. And uh, this is then for a short period of time until the cable then is repaired. Usually your only way of um, connecting through digital means. And so Tonga is an interesting case because of the volcanic eruption. There were several things that happened. The plume also disrupted aerial communications, right? So it was a, it ended up being a blackout um, for a while. The most precarious moments are when there's also a natural disaster that's occurring and there needs to be emergency communications and international relief and coordinated efforts, right? So another example of many cables being cut would be Fukushima that cut, severed many cables off the coast of Japan, but there was enough redundancy there that there wasn't a huge impact. But there was a problem in terms of the cable repair ships didn't want to enter the waters because they might be contaminated with radiation. So when you have these disasters, there are often mitigating circumstances that change the normal operations of the industry or of communications. Did you know that China Mobile International, together with Meta and other telecom companies, are building the longest subsea cable in the world all the way around Africa? Known as the Two Africa Cable, it's 45,000 kilometers long and will boost connectivity between Europe, Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. It should improve the internet connection of 3 billion people. Jonas, you actually wrote a study for the European Commission on security threats to undersea communications, cables, and infrastructure. What did you, you actually discover? Are there real big security threats to undersea communications in Europe? Well, there's not like this one huge threat to uh, submarine cables within the European Union, but there have been some aspects that have or that are disadvantaged. For example, Brexit, because the European Union still has um, uh, good relations with Britain, uh, we still have much of the access and many cables land in Britain. Mm. But there's also the development that new cables are more likely to land uh, in continental Europe than Britain. Also, the situation of repair ships is not ideal for European Union because there's an aging fleet and it's also what can be seen globally, an aging fleet of repair ships and um, personnel. And do we have a kind of joined up, coordinated approach across the EU to dealing with this? Uh, we actually do not. We actually have the complete opposite of it. And there are many, many different approaches if you look around uh, European nations. For example, the Danish leave it to the industry. Malta has its Coast Guard. For France, it's a, it's a military issue. In Germany, after Nord Stream, you could see how, how puzzled everyone was. And um, no one was actually knowing who's responsible in a situation like that. 
Nicole, what, what's, what's the situation in the US where we would imagine you've got a very large country with one very large government, so you would kind of know who you had to call in order to try and fix the problem? Is that the case? No, it's the same problem. There are many different regulatory agencies, many different kind of governmental organizations and and parties invested in subsea cables, invested in regulating subsea cables, and they are not always coordinated and they're not always coordinated with the industry. And I think it's the same situation globally. It's a bit of a mess. Yeah. What are the threats do you think, uh, Nicole, what do you think are the serious threats, actually? We know that it's not sharks biting them. What are the genuine threats that you consider to be there? What I would just highlight is to say that the lack of regulatory coordination makes it difficult to install and maintain cable systems and that the industry is doing a very good job right now. But we're looking forward to like a future with climate change. We're looking forward to a more complex future. Will our system hold up if it's still this difficult to install and maintain cables? Do you think, I mean, they are at the bottom of the ocean. We do tend to forget about them. Do you think they've both kind of got a bit of an image problem? As, as you said, the, the, the threats they have seem relatively banal and they're out of sight and out of mind most of the time, Jonas. Yeah, exactly. I think they're, they're facing a visibility problem because usually you, you only get the news uh, something is damaged and oftentimes media reports on cable damages aren't very accurate. Um, and this makes it uh, some more, somewhat more complex for yeah, academia to, to communicate um, the, the empirical knowledge of cables. What, what, what are your thoughts, Nicole? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a visibility problem. I think Jonas and I are both working to try to solve that by producing research that is public facing um, and coming on podcasts like this one and trying to talk about how cables are so interesting and exciting. So that way people will think about these backbones that do carry all of our internet traffic and that we depend on, but we don't usually think about. Last question. What's your kind of I mean, we love talking about worst case scenarios and best case scenarios, us journalists. What's your, Nicole, would be the, the kind of the worst thing that, that could happen, I suppose? I think the worst thing that could happen would be we don't solve any of these regulatory issues and they just get worse. And we don't solve any of the protection issues and they just get worse. And that when climate change events happen more frequently and intensely, that we won't be able to maintain the network at its current state of functionality and that that will lead to a cascading set of failures. I'd actually follow Nicole in her assessment, but I'd also say at the same time, we have to think about the data hunger that is then still um, going along. Usually it's doubling every two to two and a half years. And um, there's just no, not more uh, possibility for buildup if there's yeah, large conflicts that may then be levered for um, not permitting cables to enter where they need to go. This could be very problematic. And I also think the ones affected the hardest um, countries that are by now still uh, yeah, less redundant connected, like the southwestern coast of Africa or um, uh, Asian Pacific nations. Yeah, the poorer countries. Is there any effort to try and get those countries better connected or do, do we have to just rely on commercial operations saying okay there's a business case now we should probably move forward yeah i think for for parts of um the still less connected countries of uh, western africa there are business cases there 
but um, for Asian or Pacific nations, island nations, usually that's just not not a business case for commercial activities. And this is also where cable diplomacy would then come into place and support those countries that are just not commercially viable, but still need redundancy, still need diversity of access. Then, uh, Nicole, give us a best case scenario, actually. What's your, as a fan of these undersea cables, what would you really like the world to look like? So I would like there to be coordination and investment in in these systems. I would like people to know about them. So I think that in my best case scenario, everybody knows about subsea cables and they understand that they're a critical infrastructure that supports our everyday internet use. If people knew that they were a critical infrastructure, then maybe regulation would look different. Then maybe permitting would look different. Maybe people would listen to folks' need for kind of consistent um, and you know, high quality communication systems. Yeah, that we need to consider them to be more precious than they are, actually. Yes. Thank you. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you about subsea cables. Um, Nicole Staroselsky from New York University and Jonas Franken from the Technical University of Darmstadt. Thanks very much for joining us on Ocean Calls. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now to the part of our podcast where a famous person tells us all about their favourite ocean experience. Welcome Nacho Dean, a Spanish traveller and adventurer who walked over 12,000 kilometres from Madrid to the North Pole to raise awareness about global warming. Nacho is always on the move, and when we spoke to him, he was on his boat off the coast of Spain, which you might be able to hear in the background. OK, let's go. My name is Nacho Dean. I am the first and only person who has achieved to walk around the world and connected five continents by swimming. My favorite marine species when I was swimming in the Bering Strait between Alaska and Russia in my last expedition, it's called the Nemo Expedition. I was connecting America to Asia and it's a very cold place. The water is 30 Celsius degrees. We were living with Inuits, with the Eskimo culture. And it's a place where you found a lot of species like walrus, like polar bears. I was swimming and a few minutes later, a few sperm whales, two of them, were passing all the way through the Berner Strait, swimming, heading to the North Pole. That was a very impressive moment just to watch with my own eyes such a huge animals in the wild environment and just in the same place where I was swimming a few minutes ago. It's just 80 meters depth that is straight and you know if there is an animal below you, it's very close to you. That was a quite intense uh, moment. You know, it's not easy to cross swim in the Berliner Strait, not just because of the call, just because uh, it's not easy to get an assistance boat. You have to convince and uh, to, to make friends with uh, the Eskimo, with the Inuit. So I was swimming and it's a very foggy place. It means that uh, in a few seconds, everything is absolutely dark. You see nothing. You are swimming in a very cold, dark water. And you see the, the boat of the Inuits going far away. I saw them and I called them, please come here, be close to me because it's a wild place. Uh, maybe if something happened, no one <laughs> realized. 
I feel alone like at the end of the world. It's like the last border there in Alaska. I start to hear shoutings from the coast, uh, from the, the children, the sons of Inuits, and the teachers, and the, the, the Inuits shouting that there were two sperm whales that came swimming, and it was like a, a mix of magic, and I was quite terrified in that, in that moment. I, I know they, they do nothing, but anyway, you always try to be safe, and realize that we share the, the, the ocean with so many animals that many of them we don't use to face them. You know them because you see in the documentaries or in the books, but when you, you swim, you are in the same environment, you realize how vulnerable you are, that seas and the oceans and the wildlife living in them is something to respect and to take care. The Bering Strait is a place where, the, where I saw, in a very palpable way, the effects of the global warming. The Bering Strait used to get frozen, but nowadays, uh, due to the temperatures, it only gets frozen maybe in December and January. So the period that the Bering Strait is frozen is, is less and less every year. What I saw with those sperm whales is that they were on the route heading to the North Pole looking for cold. That's also a message. It's not about something that, written or, that I read in a book or in a newspaper or in a movie. It's something that I witnessed with my own eyes. There was a big one and a little one. They are huge. They are, well, more than 20 meters length. The big one. They were swimming like 300 meters uh, far away from where the place where I was. Well, when you are swimming, you are only your head is on the level sea. So you see things in so good way. It's not like from a boat, from the coast. You see things like in the same environment that the, those animals were. So I saw them, they were like jumping, playing. And the, the little baby was by the side of the, the mother. They were happy, they were in their uh, wild environment. And we were just uh, witnesses, we were just like uh, watching it. I forget the cold, I forget how exhausted I was. And those those presence, worth, that's the, when you are face to face with nature, with wild animals, that's, that's one of the best things in life. And you feel so privileged. Thanks, Nacho, for that wonderful story. Ocean Calls is produced by Euronews for ocean fans around the world. And I'm your host, Euronews science reporter, Jeremy Wilkes. And this series is produced by my colleagues, Naira Davlashian and Natalia Olsner. The theme music is by Gabriel Dalmasso. Editing and sound design is by Jean-Christophe Marco, and mixing is by Mathieu Duchesne. Our production coordinator is Carolyn Lab, and our editor-in-chief is Sophie Claudet. The Ocean Calls podcast is made possible by the European Commission's Directorate General for Maritime Affairs and Fisheries. You can find out more about our guests by following the links in the description, and you can listen to Ocean Calls on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And find out more on Euronews.com and watch our sister TV show called Ocean on Euronews.com ocean. Follow world news from a European perspective on Euronews.com. <laughs>